Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Corky Eddins, associate pastor here. I'm not the lead pastor, but I'm the senior pastor. Okay? And uh, it's, it's good to be with you and to be able to share a little bit from God's Word this morning. I'm preaching on love, as you might have caught the theme of our scripture readings. And as much as I tried not to, somehow I knew I would fail to not love well this week. In fact, it didn't just happen once, but at least two or three times. One of those was with our 17-year-old granddaughter who is living with us for a gap year um, before she goes to Virginia Tech next uh, fall. She works at Starbucks by Chipotle, and she wanted to drop by there for a drink as we were heading someplace on Wednesday. I reluctantly agreed and dropped her off Expecting her to take three or four minutes, so I'm double parked sitting there. After eight minutes, but who's counting? Um, I parked, uh, found the parking place, went in to find her, standing there, drink in hand at the bar, talking to a colleague and waiting for a second drink to be prepared for her. When her, her colleague greeted me and said, how are you doing? I said, not real well. In fact, I'm pretty upset with Kaya right now. Not good, not good. Um, So I was not only impatient with Kaya, but I was disrespectful and embarrassed her in front of her coworker. Talk about failure to love. Why is it so challenging? I think in part, it's because God wants us to realize that on our own, we can't love in the way he's called us to love. And we'll see that a little more as we look into this passage. 
He wants us to be dependent on Him in every situation, in every relationship. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's commentary on being good, uh, where he said, he put it this way, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. And here's Corky Eden's variation on that. You don't know how self-centered you are until you've tried very hard to love. We just tend toward self, not toward others in our orientation as fallen men and women. By way of overview, uh, Christchurch Vienna is a gospel-driven, um, externally focused, extended family Anglican mission for Vienna, Virginia. I hope you've got that memorized by now. Next, we're in the next, next to last week of walking through 1 Corinthians, a series on uh, relationships and extended family, trying to unpack that extended family part of our mission. We've looked at divisiveness, intimacy, uh, singleness, sacrifice, unity, and today we come to love and relational purpose. And we come to the most quoted passage probably of all of Paul's writings, in fact, maybe perhaps of the New Testament, uh, the famous wedding reading, uh, what we know as the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. It's instructive to see where God inspired Paul to place this treatise on love. Between chapter 12, about the body of Christ, which we looked at last week, and chapter 14, about instructions for believers when they come together uh, in what we call church today. Last week we saw how God has given every Christ follower gifts, how each of us is a valuable member of the body of Christ, whether we're an ear or a hand or a foot. We need one another. God has not designed us to function solo, ever. We're to care for one another. Now, the Corinthian Christians were self-serving and competitive, thinking that certain parts of the body, certain gifts were more important than others. Um, they also thought that certain spiritual gifts, um, preaching or healing, were more important than other gifts, like helping or speaking in tongues. So in the last verse of chapter 12, Paul points them to a still more excellent way, the way of love. Okay, that's chapter 12. In chapter 14, Paul is addressing the competitive uh, spirit that came out as they were all wanting at the same time to prophesy, that is, to share an insight or a brief teaching. Or others were competing to speak in tongues, um, which was speaking in an unknown or a prayer language. So in chapter 14, on this end, Paul is giving clear guidelines for when to prophesy and then stop to evaluate what was said and when to speak in tongues and then have it interpreted. And he emphasizes the manner of doing things, that it should be orderly. Okay, there should be an order to our worship practice. Um, for sure, in our service, you see an order of worship. In fact, we follow a very similar order of worship every week to help focus us on God and His Word and um, uh, His His praises. Um, but, okay, so the manner of doing things was to be orderly, but Paul even more so stresses the motivation behind what they're doing. To love to encourage, to build up one another. In fact, 
Notice in verse, this is, these are a few verses from chapter 14. In fact, he starts off the chapter saying, pursue love in verse 1. He talks about in verse 3 how they are to build up for their upbuilding and encouragement. He says again, strive to excel in building up the church. That word building up is also the word edifying or edification as we think about it. Um, verse 26, he says, let all things be done for building up or edifying again. So love is to be the primary motivation in how we're doing what we're doing in church and, let's face it, outside of church as well. So let's look and see what, this, what we can learn about what this love looks like. <clears throat> first Corinthians 13 was just read the first three verses. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I'm a noisy gong. If I have prophetic powers, I understand all mysteries and knowledge. If I have all faith, but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away everything I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but don't have love, I gain nothing. All these gifts were being manifested in the Corinthian church, and so Paul was underlining the importance of love in exercising these. I can have fantastic faith. I can donate millions of dollars to Christian causes. I can even go in and be martyred. And tragically, even today, there are countries where Christians are being martyred for their faith. But if, my, if love is not my central motivation, then it counts for nothing. I think we can all probably think of people who started a successful program or organization or raised and maybe gave lots of money or who have served for years with children in the church and they let you know about this over and over again. They remind you that they've done these things. I had a coworker um, some years ago who was very charismatic, very gifted teacher, and he knew it. And every time he would share something about his ministry on Capitol Hill, uh, he would name drop certain senators or congressmen he had spent time with. He would talk about how his Bible studies were growing and it, I came away with thinking, you know, it's all about him. It's not about Jesus. Um, I mean, it was about Jesus, but he kept getting in the way. <laughs> and I was thinking, where, where's, what's his motivation? Where, is, it, is it love? Is it love? Not that any of us are, can say we're purely motivate, motivated by love in everything we do. I think there's always a little ounce of self, whether it's 1% or 61% uh, in, in all that we do, but um, God is calling us to love. Well, the crux of this chapter, the, the four verses, verses four to seven, uh, the word for love is agape. It's used in the New Testament over 250 times in the various forms, describing God's generosity, his kindly concern, his, his faithful devotion to us. His love, agape love. And that's the kind of love we are to manifest in our behavior toward one another and toward the world. Keep in mind that Paul is giving us a description here of how a Christian ought to behave in very practical actions and attitudes. To help us see this with new eyes, I want us to look at these verses through the lens of the message, which is a Bible translation in the vernacular. So look at this with me, if you would. Love never gives up. 
Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Doesn't strut. Doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force itself on others. Love isn't always me first. Doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Love doesn't revel when others grovel but takes pleasure in the flowering of the truth. Love puts up with anything. Trust God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back, but keeps going to the end. I would suggest that most of our time, our love, most of the time our love is dispatched like a heat-seeking missile because of something inherently attractive in our target, that other person. Like when I'm looking for adulation or attention or affection or access or whatever it might be, whatever my need of the moment is. But agape love does not have my need in mind but the other person's. Paul is not exhorting us to have warm feelings about someone He's not even saying we have to like them. But no, this is a commitment to do what is in the best interest of the other person. A commitment to do what is in the best interest of the other person. Independent of what it might cost me. A cost not in dollars, although money is sometimes involved. But more often it costs my time, my energy, my attention, my sleep, my comfort a commitment to do what is in the other person's best interest. Love can be humbling, a humbling experience, and sometimes even be humiliating. What will she think if she sees me hanging out with after school with, with this nerd? Because we helped build that orphanage in South Sudan, we can't afford a kitchen redo like all our neighbors. My friends think I'm crazy for putting my career on hold, but being home with the kids is more important to me right now. Love looks different for each person, in each situation, and in each culture. Some of you know that last month I was in a very different culture. I took a mission trip to Burundi with five talents, which helps people, mostly women, out of deep poverty through microenterprise loans and basic business skills training. 25 to 30 women will get together in what they call a savings group, meeting weekly in the local Anglican church, which also, in, the, in most villages, serves as a community center. It's the only sizable building. Um, and over 750 savings groups across Burundi Families are being transformed as they experience God's love in very practical ways. Let me give you two examples of thinking of the other person's best interest. One savings group, I heard heard a lady named Froliane share that she came not thinking it would really be that much help to her. She took a loan after some basic training. She took a loan for $17 to grow and sell potatoes. The biggest surprise to her was the mutual support that she experienced in the group. She had a crisis once, one time in her field, 
and feared that she would lose her whole crop. But she was overwhelmed when 25 members of her savings groups came out and spent the whole day helping her and the crisis was averted. She ended her little sharing time by saying she'd love to see more people receiving this kind of help. Another savings group reached out to Cochili, who was one of the poorest ladies in their village. At first she feared that she would be treated differently because she was Muslim, but she really needed the practical help. Cochili learned to read and do basic calculations and then took a $22 loan to buy bananas, which she would then take and sell at their local, local market. She was able to feed her family better, buy clothing for her children so they could go to school, And over a year of experiencing God's love through these ladies in the savings group, Cochilli decided to follow Jesus and was baptized in the Anglican church there. God's love in action, in practical ways. Well, we're part of a church, not a savings group. We're in Metro D.C., not in Burundi. So what might this love look like for us? a commitment to do what is in the other person's best interest. Let's let's dream. Let's imagine a church where someone picks up a new friend and drives them to a small group or to church where friends listen and encourage you, not just by email or on Facebook, but in person or on the phone where people engage after church with someone who is different than they are, maybe socially awkward. A church where teens help load someone's U-Haul van for free. A church where couples are honest about their struggles and seek marriage counseling to work on their marriage. Imagine a church where senior adults are loved and listened to and helped where a couple have dinner with Muslim friends and even attend their son's wedding. A church where a young mom opens her home as an outreach to other young moms with little ones. A church where people make trips to Costco to replenish replenish our local CHO food pantry. A church where folks let neighbors see that they're not the perfect Christian family. And because of that, It opens conversations to talk about Jesus. Imagine a church where an older woman is mentoring a single mom who is a newer Christian. Where individuals give $50, $100, even $1,000, not through the church, not tax deductible, to someone who is out of work and in real need. Imagine more people recognize you this month and know your name, even without your name tag. What a church that would be, huh? A church where singles don't feel like a third wheel, whether they're widowed or divorced or never married. Where high school students are intentionally hanging out with and praying for other teens who are not in church. A church where scores of people of all ages pack meals for the hungry or pack gift boxes to send to needy children overseas at Christmas. Am I just imagining? No, I'm describing 
things that have happened in Christ Church Vienna this past year. And there's many, many more things than what I've shared. Now, does that mean we're on the top of our game? There's nothing more we can do? Not at all. There's a lot more we can do. There's lots of ways we can improve. But in, as Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, um, in the first or second chapter, I think it is, as he is writing them the second time, seeing some of the changes and improvements they've made, he says, you're doing great, but I want you to excel still more. And that would be my desire for our church. Yes, we're loving in good ways, but we could excel still more. The Bible sees the church, not our local hangout or social club or even the nuclear family. The Bible sees the church as the primary context for relationships. The love Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 is not a natural love, but a love that a person can only express when he or she has been touched by God's grace and enabled by God's Holy Spirit. It's not a natural love. It's a supernatural love. And let's be honest, it goes against all our human inclinations to love the unlovely or to love someone who doesn't love us in return. It just is not natural. Charles Wesley is perhaps the greatest hymn writer of the ages. Having written over 5,000 hymns and hundreds of other poems, almost 300 years ago, he wrote this, which captured my heart on love. O thou who camest from above the pure celestial fire to impart, kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. There let it for thy glory burn. O thou who camest from above the pure celestial fire to impart, kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. Unless Jesus, who came to invade our planet and our lives, ignites and fans the flame of love in my heart, it's hopeless. I need a burning, radiant love for God and for others. And those two are inseparably linked. I love for God and for others. We cannot do this on our own. Jesus put it this way. He said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in, that is, walks in, walks with or lives in me, he who lives in me, Jesus says, bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He wants us to be just as connected to him as the vine is uh, to the branch, the branches to the vine. I'm a gardener. You rip a a branch off of a plant, it might look good for a few minutes or even a few hours depending on the plant, but the leaves are going to wilt, the flowers are going to drop off, it's going to die. It's got to stay connected to the main plant. And Jesus is encouraging us that we need to be connected to him. Apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. We all come from families, nuclear families, that were dysfunctional in varying degrees and in various modes. Tragically, some in our church did not uh, experience much love growing up. 
And they've only had faint, faint glimpses of it since then. Even in the church. And on behalf of the church, and even our church, I want to apologize for ways that we have not loved well. We hope your experience here will be different. We hope we're growing in this arena, but I can promise that we're going to disappoint you. Ultimately, every person, every group, will let us down. Only God who created us loves us perfectly. And through Jesus, he offers us the fullness of his love. I encourage you this morning to open your arms wide to the embrace of Jesus and his love, to receive his love, perhaps for the first time, or perhaps for the first time in a long time. In another of his letters, Paul prays, and and this is part of his prayer. He says, he prays that God would strengthen you with power through his inner spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height and length and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled up to all the fullness of God. As we said this morning, as we cited together in Psalm 136, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And His love is that which is permanent and lasts forever. And as that fills us, fills me, and controls me, and I understand more the height and breadth and depth and length of His love, I'm going to be a different person. And this is my prayer for each of us this morning, single or married, young or old. So how might my encounter at Starbucks last Wednesday have been different? I'm double parked for five minutes and I'm getting more and more impatient. The parking place opens up and I pull into it thinking I'm going to go in and drag Kaya out by her ear. But then I stop and I think about what I'm thinking and feeling. I don't do that often enough. My wife can testify to that. To think about what I'm thinking and feeling. What's going on? I have a come to Jesus moment, admitting my anger and my impatience, sitting there watching a young mother struggle with her toddler and her stroller and her frappuccino, you know. And I tell Jesus, I cannot love right now, but you can. You gave me your Holy Spirit to live in me. You can change my heart and replace my impatience with your patience, my frustration with your love. Would you please do that, Lord? Then I take a deep breath. Maybe turn on my uh, audible.com book that I'm listening to on on my iPhone or some music. Stay in the car and wait with God's love working to change my heart. I'd like you to pray with me, but I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes yet. I'm going to ask you instead to take a minute and reflect on these four verses again. The qualities of love the different aspects of love. Ask God just in this moment to impress you 
or zap you, however he deals with you, with one aspect of love that he wants to change in your life. One, one of these aspects that he wants to strengthen, to make more real. And, and I'm sure you're thinking of a relationship like me. You're thinking of somebody in a situation where you want to be different. There's probably more than one, you see, but zero in on just one for right now. What's one way, God, that you want me to love better? Now I invite you to close your eyes and pray with me. Jesus, you invite us, saying, come to me, all who are stressed out and tired of trying harder, and I will give you rest. I will make a difference. Some of us this morning want to say, for the first time, or for the first time in a while, Jesus, I open my arms wide to your embrace and I receive your love. Thank you for loving me and forgiving me and for coming to live in me. And I encourage all of us to pray something like this. Jesus, I want to grow deeper in love and reflect your love to my family, my friends, my coworkers. I keep failing. I keep failing at, especially in this area, and just in your heart, name that place that you know he wants to work on your love. I keep failing, but you can change me. You can change me through your Holy Spirit who lives in me. By your grace, might you help me love better for your name's sake. Amen. Oh, church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand up. Reaching out to the